everyone, you're listening to Trips Tennis Talk, the amateur podcast about professional tennis, Australian Open, Day 7 edition, round of 16 action from today. Thanks for listening, thanks for finding the podcast. It's 9.14am on the West Coast, which means it's about... 3, is that right? 3 a.m. in Melbourne, and the tennis didn't just finish, but it finished not too long ago. It finished about two hours ago with Victoria Azarenka's 2.16 a.m. victory over Lin Zhu. The late-night epidemic continues. I'm going to start at the beginning of the day, and we'll work our way toward the night session. There were eight singles matches today at Melbourne Park in the fourth round, four men's matches and four women's matches, both from the top halves of the draws. First, I'll do my two deep dives. Then I will take a look at the day and night session matches, the scores, and some analysis. Hopefully more analysis than we had on the previous pod. But my first deep dive is also the first match of the day, and that was a 12.30 p.m. local match on Sunday afternoon between number one seed Iga Sviantek and number 22 seed Elena Rybakina. This was a matchup of the most two recent Grand Slam champions, and the world number one. Sviantek, of course, the world number one and the winner of the U.S. Open. Elena Rybakina from Kazakhstan, of course, the Wimbledon champion. And there are things to discuss that don't have to do with the actual match, so let's do that first. First, let's talk about the scheduling of this match. It was one of the better matches of the day. It probably was the match of the day because it was a matchup of two Grand Slam champions. And it was scheduled first up on Rod Laver Arena. And the first match of the day is like 100% of the time, it is not the most attended match of the day. When a match starts at 11 a.m., or in this case, 1245 the stands are going to be pretty empty because the way that events work, the, 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 the peak of a day session attendance is typically in the late afternoon or the happy hour hours. And the peak attendance for a night session is typically the beginning. So the sweet spot for a tennis tournament is probably 3 p.m. to 8 p.m., 2 p.m. to 8 p.m., 2 p.m. to 7 p.m., somewhere in that range. And that is not what happened here. I believe this match finished prior to 2 p.m. Let me just check that. Uh, it finished at 2.10. So it really did not run into that window. And w- when you want to introduce players to the sporting public of your country, you have to put them on at a more opportune spot. If it was a men's number one and U.S. Open champion against the men's Wimbledon champion, which in this case would be Djokovic versus Carlos Alcaraz, do you think that match would be first up on an order of play? No, it would not. So I think the WTA got shifted there because they are women players, and that is very disappointing. Rabakina has complained about her court assignments since she won Wimbledon. Her court assignments the last six months have not been good. She doesn't play on center court. She doesn't play on the second court. She plays on court nine. She's been getting assigned to court 13. And in some ways, she's lived up to that assignment because she has not done anything of note since Wimbledon. She has not won too many matches. 
However, I mean, part of that is her fault because she has not played very well. The other part is not her fault because she should have received 2,000 points for winning Wimbledon. And instead she got Zippo. She's the 22 seed. And imagine how highly ranked she would be if she was 2,000 points higher. She'd probably be in the top 10 or right there. And number one, if you're in the top 10, by default, you kind of get better court assignments. Because even if you're not as well-known of a top 10 player, you're much more likely to get scheduled on the second or third court even. That would be acceptable. And... Uh, the, the lower ranking has also impacted her draws. She's had some tough draws. I mean, at this tournament, she's just had to play Collins and Sviantek back-to-back in the third and fourth rounds. The draw would shake out differently if she got the reward for being a Grand Slam champion by being a much higher seed and therefore avoiding these types of players until later in the tournament. So on that part, she has definitely been shafted by the system. She's been shafted by the system, has Rabakina. And honestly, I also think Rabakina is not very popular. She's not very popular with the fans because she's completely wooden. She's a robot personality that does not divulge anything in the, in the interviews that I've heard her give. And the fans don't like her because she's Russian even though she doesn't play for Russia. And that is also why the tennis establishment does not like her. I w- this is just conjecture by me. But I would think the the four Grand Slams are united when they want to be. Hashtag tennis united. And in this case, I think the Grand Slams put in a... Or, I'm sorry. Wimbledon put in a rule to ban Russian players... And a Russian player won their tournament, but even though they played for another country. And I think the Grand Slams just thought, okay, I thought Wimbledon thought that was just offensive, just sacrilege. How could you do this? And my theory, completely unsubstantiated, is that the tennis powers that be are trying to make Rabakina go away. Honestly, because I don't, I don't think they want people talking about it. Because if we talk about Rabakina, we talk about Wimbledon 2022, and we talk about all the political stuff that went in the background during those couple weeks. And the next big question in tennis now, as we approach July again, because we're halfway back to Wimbledon already in January here, what are they going to do with Wimbledon this year? Is Daniil Medvedev ever going to get to play Wimbledon again? Is he going to want to play Wimbledon again? Same with all the other players. All the other tournaments are letting him play. Why can't Wimbledon? The war is not over. The war might not be over. Do they deserve to be punished for years and years and years for this? Do the players that are not making decisions in the Kremlin deserve to be punished for years and years for this? So on that front, I do feel kind of sympathetic to people affected by the Russian and Belarusian ban. On the other hand, hey, if Rabakina keeps on winning like this, if she wins another major, then the questions will go away. And then it will be quote-unquote viewed as legitimate. And she might have taken a big step here in this match. Coffee sip. So getting into the match itself, let's see here. Uh, oh, yeah, I remember this now. Sviantek was up 40-love. She was serving the first game of the match, and she lost five points in a row to get broken in the first game. And you know what? Even going back before that, when the match was starting... Uh, Sviantek received a start-of-match violation from the umpire. And a start-of-match violation is what they call a time violation before the match has officially begun. The umpire says, end of warm-up. And from the moment the umpire says that, 
the umpire says that, you have 60 seconds to hit the first ball to begin the match. So in that 60-second period, the players stop serving, they walk back to their chair, they have the little sit, they get the little towel, and they walk, they get up, they walk to the back of the court, the umpire says, first set, Igor Sviantek to serve, ready, play. And then you start. And that all of that has to happen in 60 seconds, and... Sviantek was in the process of walking from her chair to the back of the court to hit that first ball when the umpire dropped the start of match violation on her. So right from the start, Sviantek was dysregulated because this is not a very common thing that happens. I thought it was a bit harsh from the umpire. On the other hand, I also did kind of feel like, hey, we got to get going, you know? So she gets the start of match violation, and then two or three minutes later, she loses her serve from 40 love up, and then two or three minutes after that, she has 15-40 to get back on serve for one all, and Rabakina reels off four points in a row to go up two love, and that was one of the two crucial stretches of the match for me. Um, Even though Rabakina did drop her serve at love the next the next game out to get back to two all and three all so at at three all Sviantek made uh, two unforced errors and route to getting broken uh, which ended up being the decisive break so in the first set Sviantek was just because of circumstance number one she was dealing with circumstances and number two she was dealing with uh, making some errors and not playing her best. In the first set, let's take a look. Do we have an error counter? Yes, we do. Sviantek had, well, she had she was plus two winners to unforced. <laughs> and Rabakina was minus three. So, hey, guess what? I'm wrong. The stats don't bear that out. Um... Her first serve percentage, Sviantek was 53, and, Sh- and Rubakina's was 52. But the the first serve win percentage, here was the difference. First serve win percentage for the first set, Sviantek 63%, Rubakina 79. But I still thought, you know, players lose first sets all the time just because... A player loses a first set in a best-of-three match does not mean that they're on upset alert because we've seen many, many times over the years where that that is not the case. You know, somebody wins 4-6, 6-2, We've seen those kind of scores plenty, including from the top players like Sviantek. So when the second set started, I wasn't really in upset alert mode, and Sviantek confirmed that line of thinking by going up a very quick three love. And then it was very quick. Sviatek was up three love. And then she only won one more game. Rabakina ripped off five of the last six games to get a stunning win. And I know I just sort of said that big thing in a very understated way. In my notes here, the match only took four columns to write about in terms of tracking the points. In the second set, in the last uh, in the last seven games, from Love 3 to 6-4, I'm looking here, and it looks like only one of the games went to Deuce, and that was the second-to-last game. It, it, it happened real quickly. Rabakina's game blew Sviantek off the court in a very quick manner. And let's see if the stats here will back me up on this. So these are stats for the match. Rabakina had more aces. She won 23% more of her first serves. Rabakina was winning 80% of the points on her first serve. And that's why she won the match. Quick first strike, short point tennis. She had 24 winners to 15 for Sviantek. 
Um, she won more than that. She won more receiving points, obviously. Uh, Sviantek played five more service points, which means her games were longer because she wasn't winning as she wasn't dominating as much. But basically, Sviant or uh, Rabakina used the fast surface, quick strike, big serve, big forehand, quick point sort of game to beat Sviantek here, just like she used that same skill set to win Wimbledon on the fast courts over there. So Rabakina gets consecutive wins over Danielle Collins, who made the finals here last year, and Sviantek, who was a dominant favorite coming in, a dominant world number one statistically, and somebody who had won two of the last three majors. And getting into a little bit of a discussion about Sviantek now, you lose matches, it happens. Like, I'm not really too concerned about that. Although I am kind of concerned about how quick this was under an hour and a half. But just looking at the big picture for Sviantek right now, the last couple months she hasn't been as... Well, let's put it this way. If you look carefully, you can start to see maybe there are some cracks in the facade. Even a year or two ago, when she was dominating easily, Sviantek would talk in interviews about how she's a perfectionist, how she is scared of losing a match, even if she won like 6-3, 6-2 or something. And if she encountered moments of adversity within matches... She could put a lot of pressure on herself. She can get pretty emotional in situations where she's dominating. And at the United Cup a couple weeks ago, she had a loss there. I think she lost to Pagula, but don't quote me on that. And Sviantek was weeping in her chair in full view of the entire world. Part of that was it's a team event, so the emotions are different there. But... She carries with her, what does she carry with her? She carries with her a burden, and maybe she's feeling that burden right now. And this year is going to be a very different kind of year. Last year was Barty retires, Sviantek steps up in the second quarter of the year onward to fill that void, and she was asked about Barty so much by the press, which is just BS, if you ask me, by the press. And now Barty's all the way gone. The cycle sort of completes with the Australian Open cycling through again. And it will also go into March when Barty announced it. So it might take another couple months to cycle through that. But we're getting to the point where Sviantek is not being judged against another player or against the ghost of a player. And in the second year of a number one run, you are now the hunted. Think about Djokovic in 2011. Djokovic started that campaign not on the top of the pile. It took him almost the whole year to get to number one. But when he got there, he was on top of the mountain. And then he had his period where he won the 2011 U.S. Open, 2012 Australian. And, you know, he, he confirmed his supremacy in the, the, the mega match against Rafa in the 2012 final. But then, uh, 13, 14 months after he became number one, Djokovic was not number one anymore. In the short term, he did lose it, because in the fall of 2012, Roger Federer was the best player in the world. And then in 2013, by the end of that year, Rafa was number one. You know, Djokovic had Djokovic has definitely had his date his runs at number one, but the first time he got there, it didn't necessarily last. Like it wasn't like a five-year dynasty, like Federer was back in the day. Maybe Sviantek will be that. Maybe she'll be number one for four or five years in a row. Maybe she won't be. Maybe she'll have a sophomore slump this year. So. 
2023 could be a much different year than 2022 for Miss Iga Sviantek. The Australian Open might not be her best tournament either, because she lost to Collins last year, didn't she? And she lost this year to Rabakina. So in the last two, in the last five majors, two of them have been the Australian Open. She hasn't won them. She's won two of the other three. So players do develop a, a pattern where they like certain majors more and they don't like other majors as much. Maybe Sviantek is getting into a situation where the Australian Open might not be the best tournament for her. I think it's still a bit early to make that call. We have to see her play it a couple more times. But it certainly sounds like something that could be the case. Elena Rabakina is going to move on to play. Wait for it. She's going to move on to play Ostapenko. So let's talk about that one. Um, so in another match going on at during a similar time, number seven, Coco Goff, was taken on number 17, Yelena Ostapenko. I didn't see too much of this one, but it was five all. And then Ostapenko ripped off eight of the last 11 games to dismiss Coco, seven, five, six, three. From the Coco side, Well, let's talk about the match first. I didn't see it too much, but let me just glance at the stats and see if there's anything that jumps out. I'm looking, looking, looking. Let's see. Give me the first set commentary here. I feel like Coco might have had a set point or something. Maybe not. Four all, six, five. No, I don't think she did. Um, Let's look at the stats here. Where's the winners on Forced? Uh, Ostapenko was plus three. Winners to Unforced. And Coco was plus seven. Oh, man. Today is like the first day that I've been doing the pod where the the stats are not backing up what I thought they would say. Um, let's see here. Let's see. Ostapenko. Ostapenko, 80% first serve win. Coco Goff, 68%. First serve percentage, Ostapenko, 65. Goff, 50. There you go. So Goff was weaker on the serve, and Ostapenko was very strong on the serve, and let's, that was the difference. There's the stat that tells the story. The serve has been a problem for Goff in the past. It's something that needs to be improved. It's not a great serve. Looking at the bigger picture for Goff now, so Coco Goff's 18. In a couple months, she'll turn 19. She's an adult, legally, all that stuff, you know, which means you start to judge her by different standards. You know, know, if somebody goes on a big run at age 15, 16, 17, I said it at the time, she 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 should be protected by her parents, protected by the media, not expected to do anything, really, because it's all gravy. But now she's 18, about to be 19. And yes, players have 20-year careers. Coco Goff could not win a major for the next 15 years, and then she could win three majors at age 30 and 31, and that would completely reframe her career. I understand that. I'm talking about in the short term. So uh, Goff's been around... Three or four years, she made a quarter in 21, and uh, a quarter in 22, and a final in 22. And in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, in 14 appearances at, at Grand Slams, she has three quarters, or I'm sorry, two quarters and one final. And that final is the next major, which she has to defend. Like, it's not ideal. And, like, I understand if you want to just go back a year. Okay, since she turned 18, her Grand Slam results, final, third round, quarter, fourth round. She would probably think that she can do better than that. And based on her top eight seed, she should have done better than that, really. 
especially at Wimbledon and especially here. So I'm, I'm putting Coco Goff on semi-notice. Yes, she's only 18, almost 19, but now is the time to start dialing it up because you don't, you don't want to hit a wall where you become sort of known as just a person that makes the second the, the, the round of 16 and the quarters and maybe a final here or there. You don't win one till you win one, and Goff hasn't won one yet. Still a big Goff fan, though. Maybe I'm too harsh of a judge. Yelena Ostapenko, so she won the 2017 Roland Garros title. She beat Halep in what was a big upset almost six years ago. Dang, five and a half years. She had a couple good results in 2018, but since then, which is half a decade, that was 2018, she's just she's become known more for her behavior on the court. She's very aggro on the court. And watch any one of her matches and you'll see that that's the case. I don't really want to get into any more of that. So the the top quarter one of the so that sets up a quarterfinal on the women's side. Uh Rabakina versus Ostapenko in the quarterfinals. All right, let's talk about the other matches that happened in the day. Let's find those. Go to the results tab here. My second deep dive was number 18, Karen Hatchinoff, against number 31, Yoshihito Nishioka. And this one does bear talking about the actual match. So, I mean, if, you've, if, if you know anything about this match, you know what the deal was. But let's just start at the beginning. So this match, Kachanov started off serving in this match, and the first game was a lot was a couple deuces, ten point game. Kachanov held. Second game, um, Nishioka, he was serving at fifteen thirty, and he missed a smash to go down two break points. And he eventually went on to lose that game. And Kachanov serving at 2-love. He holds to go up 3-love. Next game, Nishioka gets broken to 15. Not playing too well. Goes up 4-love. Kachanov holds at love. Kachanov is up 5-love. And at this point, if you were watching, you kind of felt, oh, 5-love. That's not very typical of a men's match. And it even at that point, even at five love, just watching it, it didn't feel that competitive. You kind of get a feel watching it how good a player is or how competitive a certain situation can be. And you just had this sort of relaxed feel that told you, hmm, this might not be that dramatic. And Nishioka comes out. He gets broken at 15. He's down six love. Loses the first set 6-love. Okay, it happens. Maybe the next set will be 7-5 or something. You never know. Okay, fast-forwarding a bit. At one point, or in the whole set, I think Nishioka won two points in the second set. Yeah, he did. And at one point, Kachanov won 20 consecutive points in the second set. And it was 6-love. So it's 6-love, six 6-love six for Kachanov. Total points at this point, 51-13. to 13. So he was losing almost... He was losing 4-1. to one. Usually in tennis, if you're losing 2-1, to one, you're getting, you know, pretty routined. If you're losing 3-1, to one, you're getting obliterated. And if you're losing 4-1, to one, you're getting absolutely annihilated at the molecular subatomic level. And that's what was happening to Nishioka. And in, especially in the first couple sets, and it continued, it, was, it got to 6-love, six 6-love, six 2-love. Like, Nishioka, 
he was kind of doing some theatrics. Like, he'd play a long rally. He'd lose the point. He'd make gesticulations. He'd throw the racket. He'd go, go to his camp. He'd kind of have a facial expression like, woe is me. But think like let's think about this. If they play that match a hundred times, how often does that happen? Once, less than once. I don't think Karen Hatchinov is fourteen to zero games in a row, double bagel, better than Yoshihito Nishioka. I think that once it started happening, I think Nishioka thought about it too much. I thought he didn't have that much zip on his serve or his groundies. He was just kind of very lethargic out there for whatever reason. And even in that situation, sometimes I think he does win a couple of games. But this is, an, this is a case of scoreboard affecting a match. Again, based on ground strokes and game, the disparity is not 6-love, six 6-love, six 2-love. But once it started to spiral, and once Nishioka started to think about it mentally, and once Kachanov started thinking, I'm not going to lose a single damn point, you know, the score was what it was. The third set was much more competitive. I mean, it went to a tiebreak. 6-love, six 6-love, six 7-6 was the final score for Kachanov. Kachanov has a reputation as a bit of a choker. He's not the toughest player mentally. And that's mostly that's the, 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 the best encapsulation that comes to mind is the Wimbledon match that he played against Seb Korda, the extended fifth set where neither guy could hold serve because they were choking so badly. So Kachanov could there's a there's a universe where Kachanov could have lost that match from 6-love, six 6-love, six 2-love. It felt like it was possible at some points in that third set because Nishioka got the crowd behind him because, you know, in that situation when you win every point after you've been losing so bad, the crowd's going to go nuts for you. And there were Japanese fans in the stands and all of that. Grand Slam of Asia Pacific, y'all. And... uh. If Yoshi had won that third set, who knows what would have happened. It also would have been the first time, maybe ever, I wasn't quite clear when I saw that on Twitter, of somebody winning a set after they had lost the first two 6-love, six 6-love. Six and for you stat heads out there, there has been a triple bagel, triple bagel at a Grand Slam before, but it has not happened since the 1993 Roland Garros event. So this was the first round of 16 for Nishioka, and that was part of it too. This wasn't a first round. This wasn't some tournament in a 250 somewhere that no one's watching. This was the second week of a Grand Slam, and the score was what it was. I think that was part of his frustration too. Part of Yoshi's frustration. Um, so it was his first round of 16. He's, I think he was, I think, I think they said Yoshi was 26. He's been around for a while. He's had some injuries. Back a, a few years ago, he was known as a crafty, tricky sort of player. But he hasn't played enough recently to be a big threat. Although he was seated here, so maybe he's coming back. But Kachanov moves on to another quarter. He's now reached the quarterfinals of all four Grand Slams. That is not easy to do. The quarters of the 2019 Roland Garros, 2021 Wimbledon, 22 U.S., 23 Australian. So in the last two Grand Slams, Kachanov has made the semis and he's made the quarters. That's a good little run there for Karen Kachanov. After... The match was over. Karen Hatchinov spoke in his on-court interview. Let's take a little listen to that, shall we? 
Well, Karen, congratulations. This is your seventh Australian Open. It was your very first fourth round, and now even better, your very first quarterfinals here at Melbourne Park. Well done. How'd you play out there today? Yeah. Thank you very much, guys. Um, you know, first two sets, I mean, I didn't know what's going on, but, uh, you know, it's never easy when you're going, let's say, with the score too easy, you feel it, you know, and then at one point, Yoshi tried to turn it around, he pumped the crowd, and it's normal, you know, so I tried to stay focused all the match, you know, from the beginning till the end, but it's not easy to win with this score, you know, three straight sets, so the third set, it was a really tough one, and, um, yeah, I'm playing well, so I'm really happy to go through. I did want to ask you about staying focused as you did. You win the first two sets, you know, in the way that we saw. But then when he comes back and when the crowd's there, how focused? I mean, how do you actually do that? A lot of tennis players would probably like to know how, how calm and focused a player like you can stay. I don't want to tell you the secrets, huh? <laughs> no, but uh, to be honest with you, you know, that's what mental toughness is and uh, you try to stay focused all the match even though sometimes it's not, it doesn't go your way and uh, some points goes up and down and uh, I think the belief and self-confidence helps you to, to go all the way. This court, let's talk about John Kaner Arena, second round win here, third round, fourth round here. You've won some big matches here in the past, you've got a smile on your fa favourite court in the world, can we say? To be honest with you, until this year I lost all the matches on John Canary. <laughs> so, and uh, this year I won three. So let's say like this. Yeah, so far it's going well. Maybe I can play quarterfinals here and the crowd will support me. You know, I'm like a local favorite. Just finally, quarterfinalist. You've been a semi-finalist at the US Open last year. Quarterfinals of the French and Wimbledon. Taking that next step, I mean, they're incredible achievements, obviously, but for you to, to take that next step, what, what do you think you need to do right out on court? First of all, I need to focus and try to win the quarterfinals, right, to go deeper. So I think the most important is to, to prepare every match, you know, and to, to believe, to believe until the end that you can do it. I think the semi-finals at the US Open showed me really well where I can be, what I can do, uh, and I try to continue that way, you know, and I, I think US Open gave me a lot of confidence, so I think I rely on that, and I hope I can continue that way. There's a lot of belief in you from this crowd. Congratulations. Through to the quarterfinals, Karen Hashinov. An important... There you go. That was Karen. Let's look at the rest of the day's session now. So after that match on John Kane Arena, number three, Jessica Pagula took on number 20, Barbora Krejcikova. Krejcikova? I always mess that up. It was tight in the first set, five all. Krejcikova might have had a set point. Don't quote me. I'm not reporting that. Um... But the second set was not as competitive. Pagula wins eight of the last ten games to pull away 7-5-6-2. With Sviantek's exit, Pagula has got to be the favorite to win this now, right? She's playing very, very well. I really don't have anything more to say about that one. So let's take a look at some of the other ones. Um, yeah. oh, Felix, Felix, oh, Felix, what are you doing? Yuri Lehechka beat the number six, number six seed, Felix Ajay Aliasim, four six six three seven six seven six. I really don't want to waste too much time talking about this. Even back when I was doing the Cincinnati pods. The book, everyone knows the book on Felix right now. Good top 10 player. Hasn't brought it at the majors. F fine, I will give Felix 30 seconds more of my attention, which is 30 more than he deserves right now. So Felix is 22, and he has three quarters. In the last four majors, Felix has gone fourth round, second round, first round, fourth round. His major career is very bad. It's not good. 
nice player loses in the middle weekend. That's all I got. Yuri Lehechka is good. He's a young guy. He might be rising. Number 29, Seb Korda beat number 10, Hubert Hercotch. 3-6-6-3-6-2-1-6-7-6. I understand it was a fifth set tiebreak, and, 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 but it was kind of a choke fest from what I read on, online. This was happening as, at the same time as the, the catching off match, so I was watching that one instead. Listen, her coach is kind of the same thing as Felix. Not the strongest player mentally. I, I really don't have anything to say. Good for Korda. First career uh, Grand Slam quarterfinal at the same event where his father won couple of decades ago. Those are the four. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, I covered six of the eight matches. And uh, moving into the night session now. In the first match, it was Stefanos Tsitsipas versus Yannick Sinner. And uh, Tsitsipas has dominated their head-to-head in the past. And that's basically what happened here. Sitsipas won the first two sets, 6-4, 6-4. Sinner made a comeback. He took the next two, 6-3, 6-4. Then Sitsipas took it in the fifth set, six games to three. And taking a look at the run of form there, it was 2-all, 3-2. The break came at 3-2, uh, and the match was kind of over from there. So I understand there were good shots and good rallies and compelling games and all this kind of thing. And it was four hours and it was a five-setter. But at the end of the day, I mean, Sitsipas kind of gets a win that was kind of expected. I mean, the fifth set didn't look that competitive on the scoreboard. I don't know. And hey, four hours for five sets, that's on the shorter side for this tournament. And then, uh, number 24 seed, Victoria Azarenka took on Lin Zhu. Zhu played very well for a while. It was two hours and 40 minutes, but Azarenka gets the win, 4-6, 6-1, 6-4. And those were your matches for today. I still got a couple more things to go through here. Um, I have some audio that I might want to play. I might skip the audio. Let me just say what i got to say here. All right. So, Azarenka said in in press afterwards that she had never even heard of Zhu and that she was very good and that she played top 20 level tennis. Of course, it's easy to say that your opponent played top 20 level when you beat them, Right. Because then that means you're playing top 20 tennis. Even though she's not quite in there. She's 24 right now. Is Azarenka. Tsitsipas is continuing. His sort of second contender status. Djokovic is your number one contender. Tsitsipas is your number two contender. At this point it would be a surprise if one of those two guys did not win. And on the women's side I would say Pagula is the main threat on the Pagula and and Rubakina, maybe? I don't know. Um, so there's that. So the, there are all the scores for today. Let's look at the draws. So after today's results, here are the top half quarterfinals. And these will be played on Tuesday. Number 22, Elena Rubakina. Versus number 17, Yelena Ostapenko. Number 3, Jessica Pagula. Versus number 24, Victoria Azarenka. For the men, number 18, Karen Hatchinoff. Versus number 29, Sebastian Korda. Number 3, Stefanos Tsitsipas. Versus Yuri Lehechka. Those are the draws. 
So Azarenka's match did not finish until 2.16 a.m. The Tsitsipas match began about 7.15 local. It went four hours. So that means it finished at 11.15 local. And Azarenka probably didn't take to the court till about 11.30 p.m. Why are we asking our athletes to do this? This is the same as it was a couple of days ago with Murray. I mean, and this and Azarenka played for two hours and forty, and it didn't finish until after two a.m. Azarenka is a high-profile name, just like Murray was a high-profile name, and this this was unnecessary. This didn't need to happen. Azarenka could have played at seven o'clock on Margaret Court Arena, or Sitsipas could have played at five o'clock on Margaret Court Arena. That's like a perfect happy hour slot for a four-hour match. Why is tennis scheduling eight-hour night sessions? It's asinine. Tennis officially has a late-night epidemic. It's a late-night virus. The sport is diseased. This needs to stop. It does not get you more views. It does not get you more people in the stands. It doesn't get you more money in the long term because people are not watching it, especially in the local time zone. Andy Murray versus Kokonakis could have gotten the same amount of money if it was played at a, at a different day part. When I, was, when I was younger, I used to think that, oh, these late finishes are kind of cool, but they're not cool. They're cruel to the players they're cruel to the tournament workers. They're cruel to the fans that are there. And they are cruel to the people that are watching on television. It needs to stop. The late night epidemic in tennis must stop. It is unfair to ask elite athletes to play at that time of day. And these athletes, they are no longer jet lagged. That is not a factor for them. They have been living in Melbourne for two or three weeks. They are on Melbourne time. So that is not part of it. <sighs> I have some audio here, but I don't really want to play it. You guys can go to the YouTube page of the Australian Open to hear some audio from Sitsipas and from Pagula. I'm, I'm trending more in the direction of wanting to wrap up the pod. So now let's look ahead to Monday, the second day of the round of 16. We'll go in reverse order here. This is the weirdest thing. So first, the day that just finished started an hour and a half later and used three courts. And now, for the second day of the same round, it's starting at the extra early time and they're using four courts. Again, it's ridiculous. Like, I understand <coughs> your Sunday to Monday might be a different thing culturally, but that's just ridiculous scheduling. The scheduling this week has been awful. The Australian Open has been known as the Player Slam, but the last two years, with a player getting deported under the watch of Craig Tiley, and with the schedule this week being absolute crap. It has not been a good two years in that department for this tournament. I'm not saying it's going to be knocked from its number one perch among the four majors for me, but the fact that I even just said that sentence should scare the crap out of them. Kia Arena. Um, okay, fine, I'll do my Pacific time. Okay, here's the order of play for Monday, January 23rd, 2023. 9 p.m. Eastern, number 23, Zhang, against number 30, Pliskova. John Kane Arena, from 10 p.m. Eastern, Ben Shelton versus J.J. Wolf. Margaret Court Arena, from 8.30 p.m. Eastern, Donna Vekic versus Linda Fruvatova. Midnight Eastern. 
Number 24, Roberto Bautista Agut versus Tommy Paul. Rod Laver Arena from 7 p.m. Eastern. Number 5, Arena Sabalenka versus number 12, Belinda Bencic. Followed by number 4, Carolyn Garcia, Caroline versus Magda Lynette. 10.30 p.m. Eastern. Number 5, Andre Rublev versus number 9, Holger Rune. That's probably the match of the day right there. 3 a.m. Eastern. Only one night match. Number 4, Novak Djokovic against number 22, Alex Damonar. See? Thank you, Australian Open. That is proper scheduling. But you know what? You don't get any credit because you have to do it consistently every day. You don't get credit just for doing it for one day. Let me count. Is that eight? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yep, I got all eight. Coverage gets underway at 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN+. And checking the cable coverage here. Um, um, there's going to be a highlight show on ABC from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern today. And then live coverage kicks off at 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN2. And they will take it all the way up to the night session. And then if you want to watch Djokovic, you're going to have to pay money to buy ESPN+. Plus because that is what they want you to do. So that is the end of my topic list. And that means we are approaching the end of the podcast. If you have listened this far, thank you very much. You are a true diehard fan. You, uh, okay. <laughs> You've been listening to Trips Tennis Talk, the amateur podcast about professional tennis. Thanks for listening this far. And we will, we will oh boy, this is not my best outro. We will see you next time. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by Argon Productions. 